We all want to drink from the same cup of justice, and it starts with learning about our legal system. With tales from the newsroom and the courtroom, journalist Liz Farrell, attorney Eric Bland, and I invite you to gain knowledge, insights, and tools to hold public agencies and officials accountable. You will love our Cup of Justice shows on the new feed. We know that our justice systems are intimidating, but we all have to encounter it at one point. Together, our hosts create the perfect trifecta of legal expertise, journalistic integrity, and a fire lit to expose the truth wherever it leads. Search for Cup of Justice wherever you get your podcast, or visit cupofjusticepod.com. I don't know how Russell Lafitte lived with himself knowing what was done to the Plyler family, but I am horrified by the depth of destruction in this case. After talking to Elena Plyler about everything she and her sister have been through since their mother and brother died in a car accident in 2005, I am inspired and moved by her story, and I think you will be too. My name is Mandy Matney. I have been investigating the Murdoch family for more than three years now. This is the Murdoch Murders Podcast with David Moses and Liz Farrell. Until recently, not much was known about the Plyler case. When the shocking details of the Satterfield case began to emerge last fall, several former clients of Alec Murdoch started to come forward. But the Plyler sisters were not among them. We knew the case existed. We mentioned the case a few times in past episodes. And we knew that the Alec-Russell combination we were seeing in the public index was a giant red flag. But we kept hearing that there probably wasn't going to be anything there. The immediate thought seemed to be that maybe Russell had actually done his job as conservator, and there were more than 2,000 pages of probate court filings related to their case, which made it vastly different from the Satterfield case, in which there was, as you guys know, a single piece of paper filed with the court. But also, there were more than 2,000 pages of probate court filings related to their case, so the full picture would take some time to get at. Turns out the case isn't vastly different from that of the Satterfields and the Pinckneys and the Badgers and most of the others we've heard about. Yes, Russell filed a lot of paperwork in this case, and yes, Hampton County probate judge Sheila Odom did actually issue some orders when it came to the spending of Elena and Hannah Plyler's money. But no one did right by the girls. Not Ellick, not Russell, not Odom. Far from it. Russell faces state and federal charges for the 22 loans he gave himself and Ellick out of Hannah's accounts, which weren't entirely paid back. He was also a terrible conservator and, frankly, a questionable banker. It's clear to us that the fix was in from the beginning. The Plyler sisters didn't live in Hampton County, but as they did in the Hakeem Pinckney case, Russell and Ellick told the probate court that they did. Why? Because they would face a lot less scrutiny in Hampton County than they would have in Lexington County, where the girls lived at the time. On the petition for Russell to take over as their conservator, he checked the box indicating that Hannah and Elena were Hampton County residents. But about an inch above that box was the girl's address in West Columbia, plain as day. The sign was right there from the very beginning that something was wrong here. But that sign was ignored by the court, and it would be years before anyone would know how wrong. The Plyler story is a compelling one. It gives us a much deeper and fuller view of what Alex and Russell's alleged crimes look like from the inside and the callousness with which they allegedly committed them. And it shows us that despite what Russell is telling himself and the court, that Alec tricked him, that he did everything the right way, he is definitely not a victim in this. This week, we were so lucky to speak to Elena Plyler one of Alec Murdoch's financial victims. Like all of the other victims, Elena's story shows that what was done to these victims cuts so much deeper than money and settlements. When you peel the layers back, it's about trusting someone during the worst time of your life. 
But my favorite thing about Elena is how her story has a happy ending, despite everything these men did to her. We're going to have Elena tell most of her story, dating back to July 2005, when she was just 12 years old. Yeah, it was a Friday evening. My mom, my brother, and my sister, and obviously myself, we had recently moved down to Hardyville, South Carolina. My parents were in the early stages of getting a divorce. So uh, my my mom's family was from Beaufort, Bluffton area, and she wanted to be closer to them. So what we would do on the weekends is come back up to Columbia, where my dad lived. There was a discussion where he wanted a TV. So this particular weekend on July 16th of 05, after mom had gotten off of work, we were bringing the TV back to dad's house. And so trying to give you the, the setup of the vehicle Um, It was a Ford Explorer, and I think it was a 99, so it was one of the smaller SUVs. And I remember before we left, we left at around 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and I remember my mom, she hated to drive on the interstate. She hated traffic, and I knew she was already just nervous about getting on the interstate with all those cars and that it was going to take a lot longer than usual. My brother and I had actually gotten into an argument of who was going to sit in the front seat because I was 12 and he was 14. So I was at that age where I was ready to start sitting in the front seat. And so my mom had us agree that my brother would ride to Columbia in the front seat, in the passenger seat. And on the way back down to Hardyville, I would get the front seat. So I was super excited about that. So she, that was her last time she had, she got to parent us, if you will, um, and make things right between my brother and I. Cause, you know, we were brother and sister and we, we fought like cats and dogs. This fight, the one everyone remembers having a million times with their siblings, has stuck with Elena for years. That decision that her mom made changed her life forever, and she'll never forget it. Ultimately, he got the he got the passenger seat, and I remember getting on 95. We were on I-95 for it seemed to be about an hour. It was yep, it was right at an hour. My sister was sleeping, my brother was sleeping, and I remember I was listening to um, one of Usher's CDs playing. I had my own little headset and I was listening and I remember my mom asking me if I was awake. So I pulled my headphones down and I told her, I said, yeah, I'm awake. And she was asking if there was anything we wanted to do that weekend in Columbia. And I told her no. And we were also going to Columbia, not only to give dad the TV, but we also sold um, newspapers on the side of the road. Mom had a little business with the state newspaper to make some extra money. Um, This was the first time she was going to be a single parent. We talked about that and and working that weekend and coming back home on Sunday. And during that conversation, it it got silent just for a moment. And I remember looking up at the screen, uh, the front screen, and it said, I want to say 551. And it was like immediately when I looked at the clock, 551, uh, we heard a a loud pop. And I heard mom scream, and that's when she lost control of the vehicle. And we um, left the road, and we started spinning into trees, uh, numerous trees. And then by the time the car had stopped, I remember seeing that Usher CD that I was listening to hanging on a branch. I remember the smell of pine from the pine trees. And... My brother's seat had fell back into my lap, and I kept calling out for them. And Elena remembers every moment, even the most horrific parts. This next clip is especially graphic and hard to listen to, so just a warning to sensitive listeners. I remember seeing, you know, just what a 12-year-old wouldn't want to see coming out of anyone's head, but especially their brother. So I would imagine that it would have been brain matter um, just from just, just from the uh, impact. He wasn't talking or moving, and um, my sister was. I was pinned 
between the um, the seat, my brother's seat had fell completely into my lap, and then the TV um, kind of comes into play because it was put in between my sister and I. So the way that the car had spun out and flipped, the TV landed on my arm. So I was completely pinned into the vehicle. But my sister Hannah, who she was eight at the time, she was free to to move. They crashed in a single car accident at mile marker 38 on Interstate 95 in Hampton County, South Carolina. Elena received injuries to her hip, leg, knee, and arm. She needed medical attention immediately. Her little sister, thankfully, was able to get out of the car. I sent my eight-year-old sister to the top of the hill of a busy interstate to flag down help because I was afraid that no one would see us down where those trees were. And Hannah did as I told her to do. Um, she she walked up the hill, and she's, you know, this little eight-year-old girl um, flagging down cars. And I know that there was an 18-wheeler that pulled over, and um, it felt like an eternity before law enforcement and, um, and yeah, firemen to come, but I'm sure it didn't. I'm sure it was a lot longer and and just in the moment. But when they finally came, I I saw that they had Hannah and that Hannah was safe. And they started using the jaws of life on me to pull me out. But I actually had a special moment with my mom in the car. Um, To me, as the older I get, it sounds kind of childish, but I remember looking at my mom and she had beautiful blonde hair, but she was, I remember telling people for weeks and weeks, like, my mom was glowing. Um, and to me, I've always taken that with me as that was her soul leaving her body. And that also helped secure my faith um, because I know what I saw even at a young age. And 17 years later, I'll, I'll never forget that image that I saw of mom where she was actually glowing. So I feel at ease of where she is. And and again, like I said, that definitely secured my face. Um, But they did struggle to get me out of the car. It it did take them a while. As they were using the jaws of life to remove me from the vehicle, I remember looking over to my left side out the window, and um, they were putting my mom and my brother in a body bag. So that was the last images that I saw of them was them being put in a black body bag. Uh, when when they finally got me out of the vehicle, I was airlifted to Savannah Hospital, and that's where I began numerous surgeries and um, spent many times or much time in the ICU. Um, I don't remember how many pints of blood that I had to receive. I know it was a um, very, very good amount. That's kind of where my journey began to start healing. Her mother, Angela Plyler, and her 14-year-old brother, Justin Plyler, died in the crash. I immediately knew that they had passed away. Um, There wasn't much that could have been said to me after seeing them put in the body bags. I, I knew what that meant. And unfortunately, even before the wreck, I had to grow up pretty quickly. Um, I knew a lot more than what I probably should have known, but my mom was my best friend, and I think I was hers as well. So she confided in me and a lot of things that I may not needed to have known. So I had already had a pretty bigger picture in life than what a typical 12-year-old would, would have. But I was frustrated because my sister, on the other hand, was told differently um, I believe family never told my sister that they had ended up passing away and that she found out from the news that they had died. Um, now, I was airlifted to Savannah Hospital, and my sister was taken to MUSC by an ambulance. So we were separated and didn't see each other for weeks. So that was also hard, not being able to see her and seeing exactly how she was. But after I got out of the hospital, I did learn that Hannah found out through the news that um, mom and, and our brother Justin had died. 
We asked Elena to describe her brother Justin to us. Again, he was just 14, two years older than Elena when he died in the crash. We, he, he was a typical brother. Uh, we definitely fought like cats and dogs, but um, we knew how to push each other's buttons. And we also knew what to say to, um, to stay out of trouble. So my brother, if he, if he hurt me or if he said something mean to me, um, he knew all he needed to do was offer to play babies with me or play one of my favorite games. And he was going to be, a, he, he wouldn't get in trouble because I wouldn't tell on him. Um, and then um, we would, so I liked to play babies in the house and play house and things. He hated it, but he would do it to stay out of trouble. And then on his defense, Whenever I did something wrong, I knew all I needed to do was throw the football with him, and then that would clear me from getting in trouble. So we we knew how to push and pull each other's buttons. And but I will say though, when it came down to where we understood that our parents were going to get a divorce, we got a lot closer. I really did see my brother mature quickly because he now knew he was going to be you know the man of the house and and mom always reminded him that you know, dad's not here anymore so I need you to be the man of the house and he really did that he he protected us and and to the best of his ability Elena said she had a strenuous relationship with her father which is an important aspect in this story my relationship with my father has never been stable there were a lot of issues even prior to my siblings and I being born with alcoholism and it goes a long way with in his family and my dad had a rough childhood so I don't think my dad really knew how to show love and I don't think that my dad knew how to receive love every time that someone showed him love it was normally abuse so later on in life when he had his own children, I think he just did the only way he knew how to love. And so it, it was very, it was very um, unsteady. I wouldn't say the healthiest relationship at all. Those months following the accident in 2005 were really hard on Elena and her sister. I'm not sure where my dad was living prior to the accident because we had left to move to Hardyville with mom. But after the accident, he ended up moving in with his mother and stepfather, um, who had always been dad to him, so his parents' house. And they allowed Hannah and I to come live with them as well. So we were pretty crowded in a small home. There were several families that lived there. I was more of a, I don't want to say an issue, but more, more of a, it's a pain because I couldn't walk. I couldn't do anything for myself. So I had to have the hospital bed and the downstairs. And I needed, I required 24-7 help. I needed a lot of attention. I required a lot of, a lot of attention just because I, I, I was in a sense paralyzed for several, several months. I wouldn't say I, I definitely wasn't paralyzed, but it felt that way. I broke my femur in two different places in my in my right leg and I completely blew my knee and my left leg where they were even talking about considering amputation for my for my left leg. So thank goodness that the doctors gave me a shot because my knee is it, it's functionable now. So um I crushed my left shoulder from the T V the just the impact that T V um has uh, totally crushed my shoulder, so I had three pins literally sticking out of my arm. So I, I required a lot of attention and a, a lot of around-the-clock help. I felt more of a burden than anything, that was for sure. Elena and her sister Hannah were in a very vulnerable position in 2005 after their mom and brother died. They really didn't have any adults to turn to. That is when Alec Murdoch and Russell Lafitte entered the picture. So I know that my dad kept referring to this lawsuit that we were going to sue um, Ford and, and Firestone, Bridgestone, that whatever had happened in that wreck was, it was a faulty tire. And 
so I just kept hearing my dad talk about that, but I didn't know a whole lot about it until one of his attorneys that he had used in the past during a prosecution case, um, they ended up reconnecting. And so my dad explained to him his name, um, Arnold Beecham. So my dad reached out to Arnold Beecham and explained the situation and what was going on. And I believe at the time this case was nothing that Arnold was really familiar with and, and real comfortable with. And, and I can appreciate him for that. And so he was referred to by a friend, from my knowledge, um, of the Murdoch firm and that they, they fight hard, they win good money. And he thought that this would be a perfect um, law firm to, to get in on with us. So Arnold contacted Alex and Alex jumped on it. He said that he would absolutely do it. And so I talked to Alex just a few times on the phone at first, and then there was a deposition held in Charleston. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the Murdoch Murders podcast, the show that started it all. These 93 episodes will take you on a journey of twists and turns, ups and downs, tears and belly laughs. In this first podcast, we expose the truth wherever it leads, give voice to victims, and get the story straight. We continue this mission with our newest evolution, True Sunlight. Luna Shark's True Sunlight podcast is the antithesis of true crime. True Sunlight values accuracy over access journalism. True Sunlight is shed with empathy, not exploitation. True Sunlight is the intersection of journalism, true crime, and systemic corruption. We continue to shed light on Stephen Smith's case and Alex Murdoch's co-conspirators. But also, we like to take deep dives into other cases around the country. True Sunlight empowers listeners to understand their legal and judicial systems with our unique brand of pesky journalism. Listen to True Sunlight wherever you get your podcast, or visit truesunlight.com to learn more. So on November 8th, 2005, Ronnie Crosby and Alec Murdoch filed lawsuits against Bridgestone Corporation, Firestone, Ford Motor Companies, and a few other parties. They filed the lawsuit in Hampton County, South Carolina. We asked Elena, what was Alec like? How did he make you feel? This next part is so important because it illuminates just how exactly Alec, with the help of his co-conspirators, stole millions of dollars from his clients. I felt very comfortable, but I was also very timid. I remember him being very loud, but he was very confident. And so that made me feel good. Like, I think we got the right, you know, I think he's going to, he's going to do good, you know, like he's going to win us a lot of money because that's what everyone kept telling us is that we'll never have to work another day in our life. We're going to be set for life. And when you tell a little girl that who pretty much came from nothing, like that was exciting. That was, that was an exciting point. But then it was also hard to know that like these people are kind of putting a price on my mom and my brother's life. Yeah. And, and me and, and my, and my injuries that I went through and just all the trauma. If you ask me, a dollar sign, it's infinity. Like, there's no amount of money, absolutely no amount of money. But when they start talking about millions of dollars that, you know, we were just learning those big numbers in school not too long ago from this, um, I felt like it was going to be definitely life-changing, and, and, and it was. Alec, he, he in a sense seemed kind of cocky, but I also took that as a good thing because he knew what he was doing. Um, he He was very firm talking to the other um, people in the room I couldn't tell you who exactly was those people I, I would imagine from the other side but he was very very um, confident and cocky when, when speaking to them so where he got his point across I remember he looked at me and he told me that he was going to make this right and that he was going to make those people pay for what they've done um, and those words really helped me. I, I felt I felt comfortable and I felt protected with him saying that to me. 
A quick note about PMPED here in Elena's probate file in an expense sheet form from the law firm. We found something interesting. In addition to the $1.9 million in lawyer's fees the girls had to pay, they paid more than $90,000 in expenses. A lot of that money was spent on experts, but a portion of it was also spent on flights on private planes and Elix meals. Ronnie had a few meals on the expense sheet, but nothing like Elix Murdoch who apparently ate often on the girl's dime. We've seen a lot of head-shaking things over the past three years, but seeing Alec charge two little girls for his meals at the Columbia Hooters, which he went to twice, by the way, is a new type of headshake. Also, one of the private plane trips was through an aviation company owned by one of the PMPED attorneys, Mark Ball which seems like something investigators should question if they haven't done so already. So around 2006, Elena was introduced to Russell Lafitte. Um, I do remember Alec explaining to me that he, he basically put it that he didn't feel like there was anyone that could be trusted in my family to be in protection of, of, of the amount of funds that I was going to be getting. So he thought it was in the best interest and he said even the court agreed that it was in my best interest to have a conservator appointed to me. And then his name was, and his name would be Russell Lafitte. Um, and then Alec also informed me that him, that Alec is, or Russell's a good guy, that he's known him for years and years. They grew up together, uh, one of his good friends. So I like Alec's personality and that, just that go-getter mentality so I felt good about this I felt good like we were in good hands um, and when I met when I met Russell I remember just one of my first things thinking about him is like this guy is very businesslike he, he's wearing the suits he's very professional like I, I'm in good hands I'm gonna be taken care of and I can trust these guys and that's what they were there for but like I said there was a lot of back and forth talking between me and Russell, but one of the issues that we ran into a lot was he was so far away and I didn't have family to drive me to go see him. So it was really a lot of cat and mouse phone calls. Um, sometimes it could be hard to get in touch with him uh, via text or email or phone call. And I think a lot of that has to do with distance being that I was in Lexington County and he was in Hampton County. But we, we ended up talking a lot via those those ways. It was never really in person, maybe just a few times in person. This might be one of the reasons there's a state law about how conservators need to open their conservatees estates in the same county where conservatees live. Having that kind of local accountability is a sign the conservator wouldn't be in some far-off land. What's stunning here is that throughout all of the years that Russell and Ellick were connected to the Plylers, they shared next to nothing with the girls. Both were kept in the dark before the money came in, after the money came in, and even after they were sent on their ways when they turned 18. I had Alec. And, and the other attorneys and even my own dad in, in my head telling me, you're going to get all this money. You'll never have to work a day in your life. Like, you're going to be set for life. And telling a little girl that, you know, I, I was like 14, 15 at this time because we were getting closer to settling. Um, I was excited. Like, I was like, I want a pink, um, little small little pink car. Like, I had all these bizarre things that I wanted. And I thought that was really cool. Like, they literally told, made it feel like it was going to be a bottomless pit. And at first, it was kind of strange, like, asking Russell, like, hey, I, I need school supplies. Because normally, you would ask your parents those things. And I will say, when I lost my mom, I basically lost both parents. She... She was a she was a good mom. She was a very good mom, and she didn't have much, but she loved her children, and she always, always made sure her kids had what they needed. Um, we didn't have the best of everything by no means, but she always came through, and so it was different 
not having mom there to help with school supplies or Christmas gifts. Again, Elena and her sister were basically left to their own devices during this horrible time where they not only were grieving the loss of their mother and brother, but they were trying to figure out how to navigate life on their own. So it was very uncomfortable at first, even though I knew that this was my money, but I had to ask this man that I didn't know, like, hey, start school. I have no school supplies. I have no school clothes. Um, and I, I needed those things. So he would tell me, I got to get it approved from the judge and, and I'll, I'll get back with you. And the majority of the time, things like that were approved because I had to have them. I had to have the school supplies. I had to have clothes. I had to have, you know, medications. I had, you know, there was a lot of things that I needed. Um, but then it got to a point where I, was, I guess we were asking and we conversated so much about me always needing money. Um, he ended up turning into like a father figure to me. Um, I mean, it got to a point where I got comfortable telling him, hey, I need laundry detergent. And he would, um, obviously, he would tell me it needed to be approved by the judge. And I could never imagine the judge saying, no, don't send her money for laundry detergent or groceries. So it really became more of of a father figure. There's really no other way to put it. Um, I get kind of annoyed at myself that I let my brain go there, but I also don't blame myself because I maybe it was a, 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 spot, a spot that I needed to fill after basically losing mom and dad in one person. He was that person that I could go to because I would have normally went to my mom. And since she wasn't there, Russell kind of turned into that person unintentionally. But, yeah, I would I would go to Russell for just about everything. Um, and he would – sometimes he would tell me no, and just like a, I guess a normal father would say, you know. But sometimes he would tell me, yes, I could do this or I could get that. And, um of course, I was extremely happy, and he knew how thankful I was. I would always thank him. As a conservator, Russell was supposed to manage the girls' finances. He paid himself handsomely to do this. When the settlement came through, he paid himself more than $140,000 from Elena's account and over $90,000 from Hannah's. Every year, he took another 5% from what each sister earned in interest from the bank and annuities. When he made his initial investments for the girls, he held back a portion for expenses. This is something that Eric Bland and Ronnie Richter brought up at Russell's bond hearing because holding back that much was unnecessary. The annuities provided more than enough for the girls' monthly expenses. Basically, um, when the money really started coming in and I knew it was there, I could get a new um, bedroom suit for my dad's house because I didn't have a bed at my dad's house. So he allowed me to get that. And then I needed, I mean, just a lot of random things, but it was not saying I was looking for his sympathy at all, but I think he knew, like, we didn't have anything. And I had supposedly millions of dollars sitting in an account that he's, supposed to be conserving and protecting and preserving, I didn't think anything else of it. And again, Elena was kept in the dark and relied entirely on Russell to be the adult in her life, making all the financial decisions for her and her sister. To her, Russell acted like he was being responsible, when in reality... Yeah, there was many times where we were denied funds just because the judge well, we were told that the judge denied it or we didn't need it or it it didn't seem like it would get beneficial. And so when we were told no, we were told no. There was, I couldn't go to a second person or I couldn't go back, you know, and, and find, like, my other parent and tell him I needed this. So no meant no, and, and we just learned to live with that. We have no way of knowing whether Russell actually asked the judge all those times Elena and Hannah asked for their money and were denied. What's frustrating is that we know Russell had a standing order with the judge where he could give each girl up to $24,000 a year without having to ask the judge for permission. In the probate files, there were emails from both Elena and Hannah timidly asking for the basics, money for food and clothing. 
A good example of this was when Elena was 17. She needed to get her own home for her own safety. The biggest one that I remember, um, I was having a very rough time jumping house to house between family members for years, both my sister and I. Um, It was always very unstable, and it got to a point where my dad was getting, he and I were, the best way to put it, butting heads pretty bad, him drinking way too much to where it wasn't safe, and bringing people home that I didn't even know, and I'd I'd wake up one morning and there'd be people in my house that I didn't know who they were, and it just, it got very uncomfortable being in my own house with my dad, Um, and I was explaining that to Russell. And Russell said that, well, maybe we can maybe we can work something out to see if the judge can approve you for a house. And then, and I think that was in 2010, yeah, the beginning of 2010, I was told that um, the judge did approve for me to, to be able to buy a house. So I was, and he kind of gave me a ballpark. I want to say it was under 200000 was what my limit was. So I found several houses that I liked in the area that I wanted, but a lot of them got denied. And the reasons why they were denied was Russell said either the kitchen was too small, too much yard work for me, and those can be things that can be changed later on. Like at this point, I just need a safe home. Think about it, being 17 years old and having to make a big decision like this. It was very, very, very overwhelming for sure, especially because one, I knew I was about to have a place of my own to call home because I lost that feeling of home when mom died. I mean, I had stuff at every family member's house, and if we did something wrong, we had to, we had, we essentially got kicked out, and we just kind of got tossed around from house to house for, for a few years. Um, granted, we weren't the perfect kids. I wasn't just an extra mouth to feed. Now, my family did receive my my mom's social security benefits. So every house that I went to, it was basically for money. So if I lived with this this family member, they had to get that social security check or I couldn't live there. So Hannah and I always grew up thinking they didn't want our best interests. They wanted that those, those funds that they were getting. And that kind of leaves a bad taste in your mouth as you get older. You feel like you were nothing more than a dollar to some people. But when I did turn 17 and, and I and I got approved to get a house, I had no idea what I was what I was doing really. But I I knew I needed to get out of my dad's house as quickly as possible. But there was about two or three houses that I actually absolutely loved. But um, Russell really had the 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 last say so. And so the house I ended up buying, Russell saw it before I did. I believe. I guess he saw it online. Um, he's like, this, this is, this is going to be the house. So there was things about the house that I wasn't crazy about, but I also felt like beggars couldn't be choosy. So we just went on and bought the house and, and life was better. So when she did purchase the house in 2010, Russell played more of the role of the father figure than a conservator. And he went furniture shopping with Elena. She came to Columbia one day after we closed on the house. And we went and bought furniture and, um, you know, things that you would need to start a house, basically, so to make it somewhat of a home. So we went and bought couches, beds, furniture, you know, those, your typical home items. That was by far the coolest thing ever. (laughs) I really enjoyed that because I never really had anything that was mine to know that those couches that I'm picking out are going into my home, like my safe place. And that was the feeling I don't think I'll ever forget. We saw the receipts from this shopping spree, which cost around $18,000. Russell put the items on his credit card and got reimbursed from Elena's conservatorship account. In the files, we found a single receipt for a sandwich at Charlie's Grilled Subs in Columbia. Russell, as it turned out, was like Alec, and that he saw no problem in charging a child for his meal. I was blown away by that. Not The reason why I was blown away by that is I had spent all day with him, probably paying for his time as it was. And when my attorney, Eric, told me that I ended up paying for this man's lunch, the man that was in a fancy suit 
and and just presented himself well wealthy um and i'm a 17 year old girl and when i found out that i bought his lunch knowing that he was already getting paid to be up there i don't think he wasn't shopping for his house so i don't think he had the best time like i did but that bothered me in in a lot of ways because it would have been different if i would have said hey i'll pick up the check but then technically I wouldn't have been able to do that because I was only 17. I would have needed a judge's approval. So even if I were to offer to, and I didn't, but I'm just even saying, if I would have offered to buy his lunch, by what Russell's always told me, I always need court approval. So I that was kind of a slap in the face to me, um, that you put your food on my bill. I, I don't know, I just, I, I, I was, I was kind of, I was bothered by that. Like that wasn't even right. Knowing everything that I've been through, I I told Russell that I have been in and out with the, not me being a criminal, but I, I had to call the police on my dad numerous times to like get my belongings. Like I had been through a lot. So just even in those few weeks and he couldn't take the time to just sit down and let us be normal people and let me buy you, you know, him say, let, I've got lunch this time. Like, it, I just, it's bizarre to me. Around that same time in May 2010, Elena's dog was attacked. And the dog had to go to an emergency vet in the middle of the night. But remember, Elena always needed to ask permission every time she needed money, even in an emergency situation. This often put her in a tough spot, especially this time. And so what I ended up doing um, is I, I took her to that vet and the next day I'd let Russell know what was going on. And like I was put in a, in a position where I, I don't have the ability to wait on a, a judge to approve this $500. Like I can send you my vet bill like my dog was going to die. And, and my dog, I was, it, it, she wasn't just a dog. Like that was, that was really the only family I had. So I was extremely close to her she was I got to mother her so it kind of made it it was it was kind of a weird relationship with the dog the dog was literally like my child and um I got to mother her so she was very 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 special to me and um when she was hurt I did take her to that emergency vet and it was at a point where I couldn't call Russell hey I need money for my dog so I went ahead and told them like hey this will be paid um, I assure you but you're just going to have to wait until in the morning when I can contact my conservator to get the money in my account and they were kind of fishy about it so what I ended up doing was writing a check um, and told them just to process it the next day, like during business hours and I knew that the funds would be there but the funds were not there in reality, there was supposed to be $24,000 a year for Elena's living expenses that did not require a judge's approval. But Russell never told her that for a reason. Yeah, it's strange because even though I had the house, life was getting easier, safe, I'll say life was getting safer for me, but I still was living in a position almost like po poverty. Like I had to ask for groceries. I had to ask for you know, money to take my dog. And I was still in school, so I couldn't get a job. And so I, I had a lot going on. So I felt confident. It was kind of a split moment decision. I'll write this check at four o'clock in the morning, but please don't process it until nine o'clock in the morning to where I can get the funds put in the account. I had notified Russell about it during business hours and he was aware of it. Um, but obviously it was not taken care of as fast as it should have been because that's why I received the letter from the solicitor's office. That is a big deal. It was Russell's job to make sure Elena didn't get threats of arrest from the solicitor's office. But he was tight with the money. He gave Elena $150 a week as an allowance for food, gas, and daily expenses. That's all he seemed to have put on one account that she had access to, $150 a week. There was no cushion there and no overdraft protection, apparently. This mistake of Russell's cost Elena $121 in fines to avoid getting arrested. Meanwhile, 
Alec Murdoch had overdrafted in the six figures, and we can guess how many letters he got from Solicitor Duffy Stone about it. Zero. And for a person like Elena, who has no resources, getting a letter threatening criminal charges from a solicitor is scary. People go to jail for bad checks in South Carolina all of the time. I was scared. I was very scared. Like, I've never wanted to get in trouble with the law, hence that's why I got into law enforcement. But I've always been a rule follower, and that's, that's something about, if, if you know me, that I'm very much a rule follower to the best of my abilities, and I do write by people. So when I got that letter in the mail, I was scared. I was, I was freaking out, to be honest with you. I remember sending it to Russell, and Russell just said, I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. And I found so much comfort in that. It seemed like Russell, between Russell and Alec, like they were the magic men. Like they could make my problems go away. Something bad happened, like just called it, I'm a call away, and I'm gonna make things right. This should have been the time when Russell realized he had gone too far. The solicitor's office was being alerted of a bad check and an account he was managing should have been a red flag to most people but not to Alec and Russell, who apparently plowed ahead. Russell didn't explain to Elena what happened with the check. He just said he would take care of it. That's a big part of their MO, keeping clients in the dark and making them feel like these large, complicated settlements were just too much for them to understand. Elena said it was never explained to her, by Alec or Russell, how much money she was actually getting. I had no idea. They just kept telling us that there was, what was the term, that like more than enough to live off of, that you were set for life. That, that was what we were always told. You're going to be set for life, set for life. What that meant, I don't know, because I've seen people have money, a lot of money go through it in a year and a half. And then I've seen some people be able to make, you know, to, to live a normal life off of a good bit of money. So I didn't even know what I was getting into, honestly. In October 2015, Elena turned 18. In September, Russell started closing out her accounts, but didn't give her the money until March of the next year, according to the court filings. We asked Elena how that went. Did Russell give her a roadmap for her investments? Did he explain her monthly bills to her and important household expenses? Did he stay in touch with her afterward to make sure she was doing okay? No, he dropped me pretty quickly. I met with him at, at his bank. And it was a very quick conversation. I expected it to take a lot longer considering the amount of money that was there and the paperwork and stuff. But no, he, he dropped me like a, like a hot plate. <laughs> and the only time that I did have conversation with him was when I reached out to him. Russell left Elena with a parting gift though. Turns out he never paid her property taxes before the conservatorship ended. So I remember coming home and there was like this bright orange letter on my garage and it scared me because they were talking about the taxes weren't paid and they were going to take my house. And I, I didn't know any of it. I didn't, I never got to experience real world issues like that. So I was scared. Now I have somebody coming to take my house. So um, no one explained taxes to me. No one explained to me because the house was paid for, but I also had, obviously still had to pay property taxes but again sent it to Russell and he said I'll take care of it and we'll be right back in 2015 Elena had another awful tragedy to deal with about a year after the birth of her twins her house burnt down at this point she was renting out the house russell bought with her money and she was living in a new home but the house was a total loss in that fire she also lost vital paperwork related to her annuities and all the files from her case for six years she asked russell for copies of those files i had sent russell a uh, text message September 4th of last year, asking if he had any updates on Alec, because that was when he had just gotten shot. And he said that um, he was waiting to talk to his family, that he wasn't sure how he was going to do. And then I had told him, so that kind of started a new conversation. It had been, it's probably been years since I'd talked to Russell since then. I just out of the blue asked him, because I knew that they were best friends, because he 
I was reminded that they grew up together. So I knew if he had information that he would be the guy to ask. So more things started coming out about Alec and his addictions and stuff. And Russell would talk about how he was still in shock and he couldn't believe it. And then, so I talked to him then. So then September 28th, so even after we were talking about Alec, September 28th, I'm asking Russell again the three things that I still need copies of. So this was 2021. I'm still asking for documents that I requested in 2000, either 15 or 2016, the house fire. I want to say it was 15. So then he just says, no problem. And then October 6th, he says he is shipping all of my stuff to me that day. So I, so it took up until October 6th of last year to get all of the paperwork that I've been requesting. So I, that kind of raised a red flag to me. Like, why isn't he sending me this stuff? Like, it's, that kind of had me flabbergasted because I, I, I requested it for years and I never got it. But, um, he was very, interested in if I had spoken with SLED or FBI and wanting to know what they had said. And I was like, that didn't really say much to me, just saying that they are going through my cases along with everyone else's cases that Alec and Russell had had dealt with. So I felt like we were going to turn up okay because both Hannah and I did receive money when we turned 18. Um, I thought we were one of the, and I hate to say it, like one of the lucky ones that they didn't mess with. And then when Eric was hired and he started looking into our accounts we saw a lot of discrepancies and that we're still finding so it's been overwhelming for sure and it's been kind of scary and a lot of emotions are resurfacing that I, I thought I have um, gotten over and, and taken care of but it's kind of reliving the worst days worst years of my life it's, it's kind of like reliving them again and then Elena had to make a difficult decision. Does she go to a lawyer and find out what really happened and reopen wounds that have been healing for a long time? It was very hard for me to want to get involved, basically, um, because I, I saw where, like, the Satter, um, Satterfield brothers, they didn't even get any money. Um, so I knew rightfully so those were the people who needed justice. And even with the Pickney case, I started, started looking into to their cases, like those guys were done absolutely wrong that didn't receive any money. And so on the other hand, I look at me, I said, my sister and I, we both received money, so I think we're okay. And so again, I just, I wanted an attorney just to look, just to look over it to see if there was any discrepancies and, and wow, was was my world turned upside down when I found out that we were done. I don't want to say just as wrong, but we, we were, we, we became victims quickly. Here is Elena's attorney, Eric Bland. A conservatorship account means to conserve, to preserve. And it's meant to be an account that'll be there for when the person turns 18 or whenever it is that they're going to get their money. It's not to make you know, turn $2 million into $8 million. This is an options trading. It's not uh, trading, you know, puts and calls and things like that. This is to preserve money. And I can never imagine that a judge would permit somebody to loan money unsecured to people who are credit risks, like Alex Murdoch. He would want to be honest. He would have to say, you know, putting aside loaning money to yourself, that's just an absolute no-no, okay? For him to be able to do that, he would have to have an independent loan committee review it if they would ever approve a conservator loaning money to themselves because there's no oversight. It's only the conservator who would be doing the oversight on repayment. It's not like that the loan committee is going to take over the conservatorship account. He would be the one who would have to keep up with, well, are interest payments being made? Have they repaid according to the terms of the note? But he's the one who determined the interest rate. Judge Odom didn't determine it. You know, a loan committee didn't determine it. But as to Alex, he was a total unsecured credit risk. He wasn't putting up any collateral. And Russell knew that his loans were non-performing loans with the bank. And he was overdrawn in his checking account. We're talking as if it's appropriate to even entertain the discussion of doing these loans. It's not. You can't get even to the point of, well, what kind of interest rate should we charge? You don't loan money from conservatorship accounts. Elena is still trying to wrap her mind around what Russell did. 
Remember, both Ellick and Russell were sworn officers of the court and had a fiduciary duty to act within their client's best interest. For 15 years, she had no reason to think that they hadn't done that. She also had no idea that the entire time Russell was her conservator, he was racking up overdraft fees over and over, and they were getting charged back to her. At the bank his family owns, two of those fees for $5 each came on the days after Russell had paid himself a conservator fee of over $1,500. He overdrew her account because he was paying himself for the work he was doing or not doing and overseeing her finances. I put a lot of a lot of trust in, in both Alec and Russell. I feel very, very betrayed. Betrayed is a good word. I would also say disappointed because these men, like they knew, they knew that they were, they should have known that they were getting into situations that were very sensitive and that these people, not even including myself, like these victims, they, they've already lost a lot and have gone through a lot. It just, it amazes me that they had the audacity to come up with these crimes. And in July, Elena faced the man who had betrayed her when he stood accused on federal charges in her sister's case and others. So when we walked into the court, well, right outside the courtroom, elevators opened, and I stepped off the elevator, and I looked to my right, and I immediately saw um, Russell. I guess not, not many people around me knew what he looked like, but I dealt with him for so much. I knew, I mean, I was like a father figure to me, like family. So when you see him, you know him. And I was, I was, um, for a second, I had a feeling of, of sadness because I'd never seen him in, in that aspect. He, he looked sad, but he also looked at me like he didn't know me. But seeing him for the first time right outside the courtroom, I had this, feeling in my like a like a pit in my stomach and I almost felt like I was doing I wasn't sure if this was the right thing to do with me being in there but I started remembering about things that had already been covered and had already been found and what we had discussed that had gone wrong all the discrepancies and I knew I needed I needed to be in that courtroom so when I walked in the courtroom he walked right past me didn't um didn't look at me again, uh, as far as I know. He talked to his family, and I know when the judge called Russell up to, to the stand, his kids kept looking, his, his son and his daughter, they kept glaring over at me and, and the attorneys, and they would say something to each other, and they, they'd look back, and I just thought that was very unprofessional, being in, in that environment, because Nobody told Russell to go dip into our funds and to spend our money. Nobody told him to loan Alec and, and whoever else our my blood money. Like, that was my my mom and my brother's blood money. I, it wasn't lottery winnings. It was, it was blood money. And for them to feel like I was, I was the bad guy, that's the way that his family made me feel. Like, I should be ashamed of myself for putting him in this position, but... I was not even aware he was doing these things. I was never asked about, can I use your money for loans? As far as I know, there was never ever a court order saying that he could loan out to Alec and, and these other to himself. So I felt like they had me as the bad guy when I was just there to to show that, no, I'm the victim here. I, I, I'm, the, I'm a face for the money that he was dipping into. So it was very uneasy. I almost felt like you could cut the, the tension with a knife, for sure. One of the things that came out in the bond hearing was that not only had Russell given himself and Ellick 22 loans from Hannah's account with APRs that were far below market rate, he took out three lawyer loans on Elena's behalf without her knowledge. 
These loans from Palmetto State Bank were routinely arranged for clients of PMPED. The loans are backed by letters from PMPED that were hand-delivered to the bank. Turns out, while Russell was giving himself an ELIC 1.5 and 2.5% interest rates, he was giving Elena rates that were more than 20%. So, no, I was not aware, and it's frustrating that I got the short end of the stick in the long run, too, because I still got overcharged while he, who is a successful man, who has a good career, who has a good life, who has all the life in front of him. He, I mean, he's very, very successful, and I'm here 15, 16, 17 years old trying to figure out where I was going to get my next meal from, and it just blows my mind that even though it was a good amount of money, in that account, I didn't have access to it. He did. And it was his job to protect it and preserve it and to use it in a way that would benefit me. And that was clearly not what happened. Russ is supposed to be the checker, the guardian at the gate. He's supposed to be the big bouncer outside the barroom door and prevent anybody from coming in that doesn't have a proper ID, that's not of age, it is not intoxicated, you know. He's supposed to be the guy that pushes people away. And he let the wolf into the hen house. And that wolf was Alex. Alex is, you know, typhoid Mary. You let him in, everybody's going to be infected. As Elena and Hannah's new attorney, Eric has recently gone through the files and explained to these women what Russell and Alec did with their settlement. That just does not sit well with me at all. That does not sit well with me at all. You know, you feel like when you lost, how I feel when I lost my family in the car wreck, that we lost it all. But we really didn't. It wasn't until Russell and Alec came into the picture, and that's when we really lost it all. We lost our, our, our mom and our brother, basically traded it in for money, and then they took the money. So it was like a a double loss for us and it doesn't feel right that they paid um they paid the loans back with other with other victims money like that just i have a heart and i have empathy and that just bothers me so bad um knowing that that's what they were doing and i just i, ca- I can't imagine doing dirty work like that i just i, I could never i could ne- i don't have the conscience to do that i i don't understand where these men thought that it was okay. But it's okay until it's not okay. We're seeing that. In the probate files, we found an email from Hannah asking Russell for money to buy a car. She told Russell that she needed the car to have a way back and forth to school. Here's a passage from it. Quote, most importantly, I would help my family out with financial problems by me getting a job and having transportation. I would also be helping my grandfather out tremendously by taking him where he needs to go, considering he is on 100% oxygen. Russell told her no, explaining that Judge Odom didn't feel like she was mature enough for the car and that it wouldn't be considered, quote, educational. But was that the reason? Or was it because he and Ellick had been treating her account like their own piggy banks and there wasn't enough money in the accounts to get her a car? I needed Hannah to have a car because she was living with I want to say she was living with me at that time because I had my children August 4th, 2014. And it was just me and Hannah, kids ourselves, basically taking care of two babies because their father was not in the picture. Um, we didn't have family to help take care of my twins. So it was me and Hannah. Like, we, we, <laughs> I don't... A lot of times I look back and I wonder how we how we're still here, how we how we made it, and uh, all in one piece. But it would have been really convenient for Hannah to have the car when she asked for it because I ended up having a C-section and I couldn't drive for so long, and Hannah was the only one that could drive, so she was driving my car as much as as much as I needed her to. And actually, Hannah was the one that drove me and the babies home from the hospital in my car because she didn't have one. Um, but I'm not sure what clicked to to allow Hannah to get a vehicle, but we were very disappointed and it's frustrating and it created 
even more family problems for us for her being denied it like yes school was very important but we had bigger issues at the at the time too than just school so i was i remember being just at wit's end with with everything like i got a car why couldn't she get a car like just it was insane and then it actually find it coincidental now when hannah did get a car it was delivered to my house because she lived with me and i remember the guy that delivered the vehicle told me that he also was the one who towed away the vehicle um, that my mom was driving in the wreck. So I kind of thought that was special at the time, but even now I think back, I'm like, was that a coincidence or, or not? That the same person that pulled my mom's car out of the trees is the same person who delivers my sister's car to, to, to our house. This is the part we need to tell you about all the ways Ellick and Russell use the Plyler's case and the Plyler's money to enrich their friends. Both Hannah and Elena's car came from a Hampton County mechanic with a tow company whose sources have told us is incredibly close with Ellick. Russell paid the daughter of a bank employee to sit with Elena when the electric company came to her house to turn the electricity on. Ellick paid the father of one of his partner's daughter-in-laws thousands of dollars to act as a chauffeur for the girls between Hampton and Columbia. One of the private flights Ellick took was through an aviation company owned by a partner. But the most shocking one was Maggie Murdoch's father. In the girls' probate files are emails to and from Maggie's father, Terry Brandsetter. In one email, Russell tells Alex that they should go with Maggie's father's proposal because, quote, I just feel like we have a hard time justifying how we left that much money on the table. But the thing that you need to know about Elena's story is this. She doesn't want your sympathy. She just wants people to be held accountable. Elena now has a beautiful life. She has twins, a boy and a girl, named after her mother and brother. Who I will add, I do not think it is coincidental that they are a boy and a girl. I think God knew what he was doing when he gave me those babies. So they are both named after my mom and my brother. My life is beautiful now, even even through all the all the ashes i say and, and god does turn beauty in the ash and i've got beautiful children i've got a wonderful husband um, so my life is not all terrible anymore it came from a rough a rough time but man I've, I've got stories to tell and definitely life lessons to take along the way that's for sure in the most beautiful part of all of this elena took everything she learned growing up about loss tragedy family and faith and she created a life filled with hope and love. She is a proud deputy now in Lexington County, South Carolina. She knows firsthand how difficult life can be sometimes, and she chose a career devoted to helping others. I got into law enforcement because I, my whole life I felt like I, I was in survival mode, and that's where I worked best at. I wanted to help people. I feel like that's the cliche answer sometimes, but for me, God really lit the way and showed and directed me exactly where I needed to be and how to get into law enforcement, and I just followed it, and that was my calling, and it was helping um, my community, whether I saw the the worst in people, and, and I've been in that position many a times, and I, I knew how to react because I knew what I what I would have wanted. The Murdoch Murders Podcast is created by me, Mandy Matney, and my fiancé, David Moses. Our executive editor is Liz Farrell. Produced by Luna Shark Productions. 